Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Sumit Banvadia from University of Southern California, Dr. Janet Kukrija from the University of Colorado, Dr. Katie Murray from University of Missouri, Dr. Sima Porton from University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Sarah Psutka from University of Washington talking about BCG refractory bladder cancer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our uh, COVID lecture today, and it is regarding the management of BCG unresponsive bladder cancer. We have a fantastic panel here today, and I'd like to take a, take a little moment and introduce everybody. Um, my name is Seema Porton. I'm one of the associate professors at UCSF. We also have Dr. Sumit Banvadia here today from the University of Southern California, Dr. Janet Krasia from the University of Colorado, Dr. Katie Murray from the University of Missouri, and Dr. Sarah Sota from the University of Washington. And this is a case-based discussion and we're gonna cover all things um, BCG. Uh, this wouldn't be a lecture about BCG unless we also discuss a little bit about the shortage, but we're gonna be focusing our um, attention on particularly those who have varying, varying response to, uh, to BCG in terms of treatment of their bladder cancer. These are our disclosures here. And I would like to start by by using some of the terminology that we'll be um, we'll be we'll be talking about with you today. Uh, BCG failure terminology, BCG refractory, BCG unresponsive can be somewhat confusing, and so we sort of wanted to put those definitions before we start. So BCG relapsing disease is the recurrence of high grade disease after achieving a disease free state um, post BCG, and this can be defined as early intermediate and late. And this timing is really important, particularly in those that relapse uh, early, which is less than 12 months. This is also used as, as a clinical trial definition and particularly those that are uh, candidates for some of the recent drug approvals as this particular BCG relapsing patient is considered BCG unresponsive. BCG refractory disease is a terminology that we've all heard often, and this really is denotes patients who do not reach a disease-free state at six months after having adequate BCG, right? So these are patients with uh, CIS or high-grade TA after induction plus maintenance or two inductions, or patients who are high-grade T1 after induction BCG. Again, when you, you can also add in these patients, BCG relapsing patients who occur, recur early, and those are really considered this new kind of terminology of BCG unresponsive disease. There's also BCG intolerant patients who can't get BCG due to adverse events. Um, Another really important point, uh, patients don't fail BCG. BCG fails to treat a patient's cancer. And so we wanted to make sure we state that out, out front um, at the beginning of this lecture. So let's jump into our cases. So case presentation one. Um, in January of 2020, an 84-year-old gentleman presents to your clinic with hematuria. Like many of our other 84-year-old patients, he comes with a, a set of um, other cancers and comorbidities. And in particular, this gentleman has had metastatic prostate cancer, radiation, on lupron, and has had um, 
uh, uh, germline analysis with a CHEK2 mutation. So there's many other uh, treatments in his future um, likely. He has AFib, is on anticoagulation, and has had um, no other real major, major operations. He does live independently and he's the primary caregiver for his wife with dementia. So a CT urogram done to work up his uh, gross hematuria showed multiple small enhancing nodules, but the upper tracts were completely clean and there was no lymphadenopathy. Cystoscopy showed what we see here, multifocal tumors measuring somewhere between one to two centimeters. A TRBT was done. Um, pathology showed high-grade TA and T1. Muscle was present. There was no CIS and no lymphovascular invasion. A repeat TUR was done again because he had high-grade T1 disease, and this is uh, per our AUA guidelines, and uh, there was no residual disease, which is, which is great for him. He received BCG induction. This was complicated by severe urgency and urgent continence, but he was able to make it through. He had cystoscopic surveillance that was negative for malignancy, negative cytology, and so he proceeded on with maintenance BCG. He did well with this um, for a bit of time. And in January of 2020, your surveillance cystoscopy shows erythematous patches and a cytology that was positive for high-grade urothelial carcinoma. You again repeat the workup with a CT urogram showing bladder wall thickening, unremarkable upper tracts, and again, no lymphadenopathy. And when you do a TRBT, you find carcinoma in situ in the bladder. However, the prostatic urethral biopsy is negative. So in this case, you try some more BCG, a repeat induction. However, this does not work and it ends up that this patient has carcinoma in situ as shown by this um, blue light positive patch here, which was, which was biopsied in the operating room. So I wanted to um, pause here a little bit and again, go back to some of our definitions of, of BCG unresponsive disease and, and um, uh, BCG relapse and refractory disease, because I think this case um, brings upon the some areas of confusion that can happen when, when BCG has failed a patient, right? It should be really clear um, when there's a recurrence after having BCG, this is considered BCG failure. But I think that there is um, a lot of implications in terms of prognosis. Not all these patients have prognosis, uh, bad prognosis. And that, you know, when this gentleman first had his, his recurrence with CIS after having induction and maintenance, um, it was just at that time period over 12 months. And so he really would have uh, not been truly BCG unresponsive and it would have fallen in these relapse categories of intermediate and rate late relapse. And so in this case, there you can possibly derive some benefit from reinduction with BCG. And, and this is sort of where I struggle. I think, you know, if you meet a clinical definition, a clinical trial definition of BCG unresponsive disease, these treatment options listed here are, are really what you can talk to patients about in terms of next steps. But for these intermediate and late late um, relapses, I would have done um, what I think uh, Sarah did, because this is her, her case, and, and I would have pushed with a little more BCG. Um, and Sarah, did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So obviously, this is a tough case. Uh, it's an older individual, a lot of comorbidities. The metastatic prostate cancer um, story has been, of course, evolving synchronously with the bladder cancer story. So he has progressed during the course of my care for him from castration sensitive to castration resistant. And so we're, we're constantly sort of negotiating these competing comorbidities. But 
he had, this is truly relapse. He had a period where he did respond. Um, and then he came back with CIS and it happened within about a year. So he's right, like Seema said, on that border between sort of late early, <laughs> late early and intermediate relapse. Um, and because we were definitely trying to preserve his bladder, he's got a, he's an 84 year old who has a radiated pelvis and is, is dealing with this other potentially like threatening malignancy, you know, cystectomy is something we are using as an absolute last resort. It's also an anticoagulation. And he also can't really afford to not be at home taking care of his wife. So there's a social situation as well. If he had recurred with T1, we know that the guidelines say if, if you relapse after appropriate or uh, adequate BCG with high grade T1, radical cystectomy is the preferred, preferred answer. Those are not patients who we should be trying to salvage their bladder with for their topical therapies, unless it's within the context of a clinical trial. Um, and and there really, there's not a lot of good options in that situation. But the guidelines do suggest at this point that if we have a relapse, especially this, this intermediate window um, with not T1 disease, so either CIS or the high grade TA, we have a couple of other options that allow us to consider bladder preservation. So intravescal gemcitabine and docetaxel to a, a doublet of chemotherapy, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, is, is one option that is approved in the guidelines. There's no level one evidence for this, but we'll review some of the retrospective data. Intravescal optimized mitomycin C is actually something that definitely can be utilized, has pretty good outcomes. Um, there are concerns, I think, we've moved as a community away from using intravescal mitomycin C, largely because of the, of the uh, tolerance issues. And there's, of course, something that a lot of people talk about, which is this risk of sort of developing really severe refractory bladder symptoms um, and, and essentially a, devital, a, a devitalized and de dysfunctionalized bladder that, that can substantially impact quality of life. Um, and function. And, and so that's something that's sort of a feared uh, consequence of mitomycin C that has sort of that plus the expense has sort of moved our community away from it as we've all sort of embraced gemcitabine as a primary intravescal chemo. And then intravescal valrubicin, that, there is actually level one data for that. And that was what was in the guidelines uniquely for a long period of time. Of course, now we have um, a couple of other great topical options. And then we're going to spend some time later in one of our cases today talking about systemic pembrolizumab, which obviously is a newer option. So with this gentleman, I, I carefully reviewed um, intravescal gemcitabine, docetaxel, valrubicin, and, and systemic pembrolizumab, and we'll talk a little bit more about sort of how we kind of went through that, di that discussion. In terms of the facts, BCG unresponsive disease, unfortunately, is really common. So with induction BCG, when you look in the bladder at three months, 70% of people are going to have a good response and not have cancer. But the five-year recurrence-free survival is 25%. That means 75% of patients who get BCG, their cancer is going to come back. And that's a statistic that I think is really important to hammer home for patients early. When patients have a diagnosis of high-risk non-AUA, um, high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, I have a conversation with patients where I say, listen, this is going to be something that is going to be essentially a chronic illness. We are going to be dealing with this. You and I are going to be friends for a really long time. And that's something that I think a lot of patients think, oh, you just give me the medication, I'm good, I can go. But no, this is something that we are going to be contending with. And I tell them, I said, we're going to go through iterations of treatment, and we're going to have periods where we're winning, and we're going to have periods where we take a step back. And I think setting those expectations early is really helpful in terms of helping patients understand 
what this is going to look like, how it's going to impact their life. You know, we can get into all kinds of discussions around things like financial toxicity and sort of the quality of life implications. But the, the, this, this is something that you have to set this expectation early. The maintenance regimen that we talk about here, this is the SWOG protocol that is, it's basically based on the guidelines. This is what we all use is that that's a three weekly dose. I call it a booster dose in my clinic that the patients get at if everything's going well and they don't have any evidence of recurrence at three months six months, and then every six months for a total of three years following their induction course. And then I, the, um, Seema had made a really important point about sort of the clinical trial definition of what is, what is adequate BCG. If they just have a recurrence after that first induction course, technically that's not a failure at that point. The clinical trial definition of optimal or adequate BCG is they have to get more than equal to or greater than or equal to five of the intended six doses of their induction course, plus at least two maintenance doses. So that's that five plus two definition that she brought up in one of the earlier slides. And then, um, or you can give them, or, or it can be two sequential inductions. Um, and it's important to know that half of patients who get a second induction course are still going to have their disease come back. So in terms of setting expectations, these statistics are kind of helpful to have in the back of your mind and to bring up to patients and to normalize the fact that these recurrences are common. I think it's, um, and then it's also helpful to understand what the clinical trial definitions are because that has implications for how we move forward in treating patients. Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, uh, make one additional point about the induction and the and, and also needing maintenance. Um, for high-grade T1 disease, if that's what you start with, and you give induction BCG, and on your next cysto, you see high-grade T1 again, um, that's considered also BCG unresponsive disease. And many would argue that um, that, that is the highest of, of the highest risk of patients. And so really should be moving towards cystectomy and we'll address that. And we'll be kind of presenting these um, these definitions of, of, of BCG unresponsive, relapse, refractory, a mix of the two throughout the presentation, just to kind of discuss some of the nuances um, and and also the, the, the really um, formal uh, clinical trial definitions that are that are being being used. Um, and so I think uh, Dr. Sika uh, uh, referred to these guidelines you know, refer to these often, um, it can help sort out some of the confusion with these different states of, of BCG responsiveness. And then I'll move on, on to the next slide in terms of next steps. And, and you had mentioned again that this is, this is where you discuss these, um, these options with him and um, that gemcitabine and docetaxel was, was sort of selected. And it looks like he's done well thus far, but again, we know, um, Patients are always going to be on surveillance on this, and, and we'll see what 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 ends up happening. And I'm going to turn it back over to you, Sarah, regarding discussion of of the data surrounding gemcitabine and docetaxel. Great. So this, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, and, and this data actually was born out of um, out of that true necessity. Obviously, we we're going to have a little bit more information in in some time about the BCG shortage and how that's impacted all of our practice. But in the setting of not having enough BCG, um, there was a push towards trying to figure out what else we could use intravesically um, to impact the, the outcomes with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So this is retrospective data from, it's a multi-institutional study. It, um, uh, the, uh, it's a 
the cohort was collected over about a nine year period. There were 276 patients at the median follow-up of just under two years. And the people who were entered into this cohort, the inclusion criteria was recurrent non-muscle invasive bladder cancer with a history of BCG. So BCG on refractory, although only 40% of this cohort met that clinical technical, the, the technical clinical trial um, definition. The regimen for this, for the BC, for gemcitabine docetaxel, the doublet therapy is they get gemcitabine and it's one gram of gemcitabine in sterile water. They hold it in their bladder for 60 to 90 minutes, followed by after drainage, docetaxel intravesically that's held then for one to two hours if they can hold it. If patients get through that initial six week induction course, then it's they go on to maintenance. And the this study, the maintenance regimen that was utilized was one uh, dose per month for up to 24 months. Um, the, the retrospective data would suggest that 40% of patients do have some um, adverse uh, side effects from this therapy, but most patients can get through it. Um, only 9.4% of patients had symptoms that impacted their ability to, to actually make it through that six-week induction course. Um, nine patients uh, couldn't get the full treatment course, and there were delays in 17 patients. And then this is the crux of it, is the oncologic outcome. So at one year, the recurrence-free survival is 60%, at two years, 46%. The high-grade recurrence-free survival at one year, 65% compared to 52% at two years. And about 15% of these patients during follow-up went on to cystectomy. If you go to the next slide, these are just the Kaplan-Meier curves showing again. So the, the number to think about is the two-year recurrence-free survival from, the gem, from in combination intravesical gemcitabine and docetaxel at 46%, high grade 52%, two years. That's the data that you wanna kind of have in the back of your mind. And then the next slide just shows the maintenance data. There's not a lot of data on this. This is a retrospective study that was recently published that just basically looks at 66 patients from one institution who were treated with gemcitabine and docetaxel. 70% were NED at, at three months. Now that harkens back to the data I already gave you for BCG, initial BCG response at three months, complete response 70%. So we're talking about the same amount, but these are people who've been pretreated with BCG previously. Um, and if they're negative, then they're eligible for maintenance. The maintenance course here again is once a month, monthly for 24 months if they can make it that, make it that far. Um, and this is a study where they compared patients who went on to maintenance versus observation. 17 of these patients ultimately went on to maintenance, 24 went on to observation. And here's the, the important point is that one year, the folks who were on maintenance, the recurrence-free survival was 81% compared to 42% for the patients on observation, clinically significant, or, uh, both clinically significant and, and statistically significant. The two-year data is not statistically significant. There is obviously a clinical split in the curves, but obviously it's a very small number of patients because this is a relatively small um, cohort. So there is some data to support the utilization of, of maintenance. I certainly use it in my practice. Um, I'm, I don't know the rest of the panel, um, your thoughts on that, but we think it's fairly important to try if patients can do it. Um, but obviously then if this doesn't work, then we have to move along to other options and we'll talk a bit more about that. Uh, um, of, of everybody on the panel, who, who utilizes gemcitabine and docetaxel um, as part of their treatment strategy for BCG unresponsive disease for patients? I mean, I, I know I do. Um, and do you guys all use maintenance? Mm -hmm. 
me as well um, for these patients. And so I'm gonna move on to the next slide in the interest of time. Um, so for our second case, this is a 76-year-old uh, African-American uh, African gentleman who presented with intermittent gross hematuria for many months. Um, so similar age and, and presentation as our first case. He has some comorbidities, um, he is a, a smoker and is a current smoker um, and again struggles with being able to um, get in to see physicians and driving to appointments um, and has minimal, minimal family support. Uh, he had a standard exam and workup. A cystoscopy showed a four centimeter tumor. Imaging was clear in terms of upper tracts and, and lymph nodes. And uh, he underwent a TRBT. Uh, which was a high-grade TA muscle present was and was not involved. Um, he had a re, Dr. Murray did a re-resection with CIS only, and uh, this is likely just to ensure uh, tumor clearance um, because it did look like his tumor size was a little bit on the large side. He was treated with induction BCG. He had maintenance. This is all per the SWOG standard protocol. Uh, however, his um, First surveillance cystoscopy after his first maintenance, so this is at the three-month follow-up, there was recurrent tumor and erythema. He was taken back to the operating room for two resections and was found to have high-grade T1 with CIS. Um, muscle was present and not involved. And again, here's the slide looking at our, our um, BCG terminology. And so this is a, 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 a patient who um, can be defined by a few different things, but particularly he is in that um, BCG refractory group where he got appropriate BCG and, and has a clinically significant recurrence. Um, so next steps, um, Dr. Murray utilized a different option uh, in this case. And um, Katie, I'm gonna let you take over here in terms of <coughs> decision-making for pembrolizumab and um, also to go over some of the data in this yeah. case. Okay, great. Thank you. So, you know, I, I think one thing that I will point out that Sarah said um, early on, right, this, this gentleman um, recurred quickly with, with high-grade T1. Um, of course, our number one thing is to, to push this gentleman for a cystectomy. He's a 74-year-old gentleman um, he uh, overall from a functional status um, would have done well with cystectomy, but absolutely refused to have that done from uh, overall from a social situation, taking out his bladder also because of his reliance on coming to appointments also would have been an ideal situation, um, but just can't wrap his head around that idea. Um, and so we talked about many other options, right? And the fact of coming to the hospital once a week for any sort of installation into his bladder was close to impossible. Um, he also has a history of some um, illicit drug use and you know it just really made these, these options not possible. Um, with the, the CIS, we talked about uh, systemic pembrolizumab. And um, due to that, um, kind of all of these conflicting factors and put it all together, he decided to get this to try um, and uh, started, uh, you know, Q3 week um, pembrolizumab um, in concordance with my medical oncologist who runs clinic um, at the same time, you know, that I do. And so um, I'm not giving that myself, um, but he's giving that. 
And, um, you know, so far to this, to this point, um, the patient has been doing well, um, minimal to no side effects with his uh, systemic therapy. He did, due to, um, you know, these social situations, missed a, a dose early in the course um, and he's had a couple of follow-up cystoscopies with negative cytologies, um, as well as negative um, cysto in the clinic. Um, the other thing, you know, that I would point out is, is, you know, making sure to monitor these upper tracts and making sure that I'm monitoring for any lymphadenopathy. Um, so I do CT urograms, um, you know, fairly often on these individuals, um, you know, every six months. Um, for a period of time in a gentleman like this. And so then I think the next slide, we have a little bit of um, just, uh, just a quick overview data on Keynote 057 um, that got the FDA approval for pembrolizumab. Um, and I think, you know, Sarah pointed out earlier, what's, what's a number to remember when you're talking to your patients? Um, and this, these are patients uh, approved for CIS with or without papillary disease after the after BCG. And I think it's really important for us to realize that this is that CIS with or without papillary disease. Uh, complete response at three months was 40%. Um, in the trial to date, no progression to, to T2 disease. And so I think that's really that, that number um, uh, with a median duration of complete response at about one year um, at this point in time. And, and um, Dr. Krasia, do you use pembrolizumab and do you give it or do you, do you coordinate with the medical oncologist in terms of referrals? Yeah, I, I, I do um, and, and do do it through our medical oncologist. Um, it's, it's interesting when you have a discussion with a patient that's at this point, when you talk about the response rate of pembrolizumab, you see the number 40% here. The number I give them at two years is 20% though. Um, and so when we're talking about, you know, what is the most effective and then, you know, the, the numbers that Dr. Uh, Suka showed us, you know, that Gemdosi for CIS is like 38%, I think, at two years. So the options are getting slim. And so I think, you know, pembrolizumab is great. I think it's great to use. Um, but in a patient that has good performance status, like I really, um, you know, kind of make sure that they're aware that the chances of this going away are fairly low. Yeah, I think that brings up a, a, a good point. How about you, um, Sumit, do you use pembrolizumab um, in your practice and and is it with a medical oncologist in conjunction with, with them? Yeah. Yeah, I think similar to everyone else, We, I mean, when we do prescribe it, when I do prescribe it, it it's or, or do refer patients, it's, it's through our medical oncologist. Um, which, you know, in an academic setting, um, you know, that is not an insurmountable um, barrier. But I do think the, for the reasons we've discussed, I'm not sure how, how much of a sort of durable option this is um, for us as urologists, as a community overall, because of, you know, not everybody's going to have that option. Um, and, and in their update on this trial, I mean, there were I think it was about 40% of patients who did ultimately end up getting a cystectomy. So again, just speaking to the same point that, um, you know, it's not just about this initial response, it's, it's, it's the durability and even beyond that one year um, or that 18 months that they published initially, but, but you know, just preparing patients for 
like Sarah said, this is a chronic disease. And um, I think we're gonna get to that later too. I mean, as time goes on, time in and, in and of itself in this disease is unfortunately a risk factor as well. Um, so yeah. just things to keep in mind. I think that's a really good point. And that gets us into our next case. Um, a 72 year old robust gentleman. So not too many comorbidities at all. He had had um, high grade TA, no CIS about five years ago and received BCG induction. And he's gone this whole time, um, these five years with no recurrence. So he was in that lucky 25% thus far, but we're, we're heading to maybe, maybe, maybe um, things are not looking so great. Um, he had had multiple surgeries for a urethral stricture disease and stress incontinence that had come from uh, radiation for localized prostate cancer and was getting cystoscopies uh, fairly often for, for that reason. And your, your colleagues ended up seeing um, this on, on, on cystoscopy. And so there's this um, redder area down low and some of these papillary tumors up high and cytology was suspicious for, for high grade disease. Uh, next steps for this gentleman, he had gone, he went to the OR for blue light cystoscopy. TRBT showed high grade TA disease. Um, BCG induction was, was completed and flexible blue light in clinic uh, showed biopsies that were consistent with small areas of carcinoma in situ. Um, and so Samin, I think this is your case. And um, so I'm gonna turn it over to you for discussion, but particularly I wanted to ask about your use of blue light uh, in the situations in the management of patients um, in terms of surveillance and then also for the, for the operating room um, after receiving BCG. Sure, thanks Seema. So um, speaking first to blue light cystoscopy in the operating room, well, we know that the utility um, is pretty significant in, in all patients with existing bladder cancer. Um, you can see here, this, is a, this paper is a few years old now, um, but basically using both white light and, and blue light together, you really can get um, extremely high sensitivity for picking up both low grade and high grade, high grade um, lesions. But particularly when we're talking about carcinoma in situ, um, this patient did have some of these red areas, although it was obviously an irradiated bladder. So that kind of was a bit confounding, but um, high grade cytology, blue light certainly um, um, does much better than white light alone in picking up gas. Um, in terms of blue light cystoscopy in the um, clinic, the flexible blue light cystoscopy, which is not widely available yet. Um, we have found that it is extremely useful, um, particularly during COVID. It, it allowed us to do a lot of um, very um, specific surveillance and a lot of biopsies because of the nature of the, the scope and the setup and the fact that it has a suction on it. You really can work for quite a while um, with, with good tolerance um, in, the, in, the, um, in the clinic. And um, so in this case, it was, it, was particularly, um, it was particularly useful. What I will say is that patients who have irradiated, uh, who have had pelvic irradiation, I shouldn't say their bladder irradiated, but obviously you see the effects of that. I do find that, that blue light um, can often be, you know, it, 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 can, it can often be just as confusing with blue light. And so you do have to do those extensive biopsies, but overall, yes, very helpful. Awesome. And then um, what were you um, considering in this gentleman as he was kind of moving through? It's almost like a, um, you know, it had been five years since his, his first um, uh, kind of treatment course 
with his disease in BCG and now it's the same thing sort of again. And so what were some of your thoughts regarding using BCG again, how much you were gonna use, when you were gonna call it um, and those types of issues? Yeah, so for this guy, there was a couple of different competing things. On one hand, he's sort of our, our, our you know, recurrence after BCG, but he's, he's our good actor, right? It's been a long duration. At one induction course, he really was surveilled very closely and, and appropriately and never had a recurrence. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, I, I think certainly, you know, doing BCG indu induction and giving him um, all the sorts of numbers we've talked about, but feeling kind of optimistic that he may have good response with that. Um, on the other hand, this is all going on in the setting of somebody who is increasingly working his way to um, being almost a bladder cripple with everything that's going on with his urethra and his other surgeries. Um, and regardless of that though, uh, as we've talked about, yes, the initial response rates are good. The five-year response rates overall are quite low at 25%. And so my standard spiel includes um, a discussion of cystectomy up front um, with the, particularly in this, in this gentleman, um, with the sort of caveat that I was not pushing him to cystectomy now. I didn't think that was the first right step, but that these are things that we needed to think about and would, and would keep coming up. Um, so for him, you know, so overall, again, 50% of patients um, will respond to a second course of um, induction as well. Um, and uh, particularly those with, with TA and, and carcinoma in situ. The second set of biopsies I did, although the blue light showed a large area um, that looked abnormal, um, I took many biopsies and only one came back with like early carcinoma in situ. Um, so for him, we did feel like a second induction course was, was warranted and was appropriate. And so that's what we did. Um, but then unfortunately after that, you know, he, he again had carcinoma in situ and, and cytology that showed high grade. So. Yeah, and so again, um, these are options for for BCG unresponsive disease, and you know we've discussed a few of these and also talked about um, cystectomy. And so, uh, what what did you end up uh, considering for him? Yeah, well, just laying out the options here. I mean, again, um, um, cystectomy is is a, is a standard of care option or these bladder sparing salvage options. If he had been high grade T one. Um, really, we're talking cystectomy, unless that is something that just cannot be done. But since we had, since he had um, as carcinoma in situ, these were things that we we discussed. Um, there's two FDA approved options currently. We've already talked about Pembro. Um, there's also intravesical valrubicin, which has you know pretty abysmal outcomes, and so I don't think that's really used at all much anymore. I certainly don't use it. Um, intravesical gem dosi, we've also talked about as well, not FDA approved, no level one data, but widely used for sort of the ease of logistics and the familiarity. Um, and, and patients in my experience have tolerated it quite well. And so we, that is our first go-to um, for BCG unresponsive disease followed by maintenance, uh, by the monthly maintenance. And then things that are on the um, horizon in terms of getting to our clinical practice include um, edstilidrin, which is intravesical neutropharagene uh, for adenovac, which I think if we go to the next slide, we can talk about the data for that. Um, so, you know, there, there's so many, um, as you can see, there's so many options in this space. And so for me, I like to think about things in terms of both, both, the, both the data, but also the logistics, 
um, what, what are the sort of short and long-term outcomes for patients and sort of the real world ease versus barriers. I think this one really does win um, in terms of ease of logistics. If you can go to the next slide. So the interesting thing about the uh, cohorts that this, that this study was based on was that the, these were incredibly highly pre-treated patients. Um, they had extensive BCG history. They were all BCG, they really all didn't meet that BCG unresponsive FDA definition. Um, and they divided the cohorts into, the, into these carcinoma in situ and non-carcinoma in situ cohorts, which is also very useful for the clinician as well. You can see um, the, the Kaplan-Meier curves here. Um, the, the patients with high-grade TA or T1 um, did, did really well. Um, the carcinoma in situ patients did well as well, but you can see that it wasn't quite as good a response, uh, a recurrence-free um, survival response as in the others. But overall, their one year free from high-grade recurrence for carcinoma in situ was about 24%. And when you think about how pre-treated these patients are, um, those are those are pretty promising results. Um, ultimately, about a quarter of patients did undergo cystectomy. Five of those were with muscle invasive disease. One patient did have nodal disease, um, and no patients died of bladder cancer over the course of the study. So, also kind of, also a little reassuring. Yeah, and so I think that. Um... I, I end up showing showing this table and I'm hoping our, our um, video is not uh, <laughs> affecting some of the slides, but it, this is just a summary of everything we've sort of, of, of discussed in terms of uh, pembrolizumab, uh, natafergine, gemdose, as well as some other kind of medications and, and drugs on the horizon and a little bit of a summary of, of doing um, um, of looking at this from both three-month CRs, 12-month CRs, treatment schedule. If you can look, um, vicinium is, is something that sort of also made a splash in terms of having some uh, fairly good three-month CRs and, and for papillary disease, 12-month uh, CRs. But the treatment schedule, I put, I put a lot because it, it, it is a weekly to bi-weekly um, treatment. And when you look at the potential doctor visits, assuming a CR, including cystos, it, it kind of does not hit that sweet spot like Sumit was talking about in terms of uh, real world ease. Whereas when you look at natafergine, um, those visits are a little less because of the three month dosing. And so I think that, that that brings up a really important point, not only oncologic outcomes, but practicality. I'm gonna move our video just a little bit, hopefully here. Um, down to the bottom, just to sort of show the, the very right side of this slide, um, which is N803, which is another uh, uh, um, intravesical drug, uh, an IL superagonist. And um, this also showed very promising results in a heavily pretreated patient. But I think what all this sort of tells us is that there's a lot of drugs and a lot of excitement in this space. Um, but with that is going to come some um, uh, some real hard questions about how many of these will we try for our patients in a row? How do we sequence these? Um, what will we use to do that? And I think we've discussed a lot of those different probabilities. And I think, um, Samin, I'm gonna turn this back over to you, is 
is, is there anything of such as too much bladder preservation for these patients, particularly as we get more and more and more options? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just important to, for us to kind of drive home that these are, these are the highest risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients that we're talking about in all these cases here. And so that's always in the back of our mind as well. So in terms of, is there risk to too much bladder preservation? Well, of course, we know that there's the risk of having occult lymph node disease in patients with carcinoma in situ, which is not insignificant, which we'll talk about. And we also know that there's a risk of progression to muscle invasive disease. We know that patients with this secondary muscle invasive disease do not have as, as good a five-year cancer-specific survival as those who present with muscle invasive disease. And you know, one has to wonder how much of that is, um, is that factor of time. You know, somebody comes into your office with muscle invasive disease, certainly you're gonna go to that, um, go to cystectomy and the potential for that, for that curative effect. Um, so this is a study out of USC um, several years ago now, and, and Seema, if you can advance the slide. What we did from our institutional database is we looked at 114 patients who underwent cystectomy for clinical non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, about 60% of them were T1. These were all high-risk patients. Um, overall, upstaging to muscle invasive disease was about where you would expect. It was about 15, um, 15%. But when they looked at lymph node metastasis, overall for this cohort, it was, it was 8%, which was not insignificant. And in particular, in the carcinoma in situ group, it was 12%. And you can see here that some, some of these patients um, had, had lymph node metastasis, particularly the CIS patients, even in this sort of very high level, level three zone, um, although there were no skip mets. So that's just something to keep in mind. We recently re-updated this analysis and, you know, to more contemporary um, cases. And again, we're right there at that 12% um, lymph node metastasis rate in these, in these carcinoma in situ patients. So something, another number to keep in mind. Um, of course, we have to balance this with what matters most to patients. This is a recent abstract um, from Noah Hahn, where we, where we uh, surveyed patients from the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, um, patient survey network, and the endpoint that patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer cared about the most was keeping their bladder. It was not, was not complete response. It was not two-year recurrence-free survival. And in terms of a tolerance for toxicity, when we're talking about things like immunotherapy, et cetera, there's a pretty high tolerance for reversible toxicity, but um, as you could expect, a pretty low tolerance for any permanent um, toxicity. So these are all kind of things that we need to weigh and um, discussion points we need to hit on with patients probably from the beginning and re repeatedly through this journey. Awesome, and so it looks like that um, for this patient um, after their um, second carcinoma in situ, to recurrence that made them in that traditional uh, BCG unresponsive definition uh, that, that he ended up opting for um, a radical cystectomy. And I think this points out the, the case, the, the data that you, guys, that you just presented regarding um, his pathology and the, the risk of occult uh, uh, invasive disease, right? Our clinical staging does not always match our pathologic staging. And so I think that this is a, a nice highlight of that. So with our last um, 10 to 15 minutes, I'm gonna move on to, to the next case. 58-year-old um, woman with an autoimmune dermatomyositis. Um, she had had a workup that included a urine cytology that was, that was positive. 
and uh, for this reason, she was referred over. Uh, her medications are related to her, her autoimmune disease. She is a never smoker. She had um, a cystoscopy and then a TRBT with blue light, which showed a large high-grade TA tumor. Muscle was present and not involved. There was carcinoma in situ kind of colliding with adjacent to the tumor. A repeat TUR was also done in her case, which again showed carcinoma in situ and no residual papillary disease. Um, upper tract imaging and everything was, was clean, lymph nodes clean. And, and for treatment, um, this is uh, Dr. Kakraj's case, Janet's case, and, and she had elected to do gem dose, um, partially in part to her severe dermatomyositis. Uh, she had um, her first three-month cysto, which was negative for recurrence and, and has been on um, gem dose monthly. And so Janet, I'm gonna turn this over to you, discuss a little bit about um, uh, why did you start with uh, gem cytobine uh, dose of taxol? Did you consider B BCG in this setting? Was there no BCG um, available? Yeah, thank you. Um, so this patient, we did have BCG available. However, um, I thought that this was a, a good case to kind of pretend that maybe I didn't have BCG available. Um, I had a serious conversation with the patient and her dermatologist about what was going on, and they felt that the BCG could exacerbate her dermatomyositis, and she was already in like physical therapy. She'd lost her hair. I mean, she was just really reeling from the side effects from it, um, and so she we also did talk about cystectomy and she was not up for it. Uh, so we decided to do the gemcitabine and docetaxel. Um, her first cysto uh, was negative for recurrence and she's going to start, uh, and she just started her monthly gemcitabine and docetaxel. But I think this is a great opportunity to talk about the BCG shortage and how we've managed it, why it's here and kind of what to do with it. Next slide. Um, so what happened to all our BCG? So um, the FDA approves all the medications that we administer in the United States, whether they're um, from uh, other countries or not. And so basically the FDA uh, shut down um, our, one of our uh, BCG producers. And so then that left a sole producer, uh, Merck, and um, they are the only ones that have been supplying BCG for the last uh, I think three years now. Um, and so the, you know, patients ask this all the time because the patients are very well aware of the BCG shortage. And, you know, the question is, well, why, why don't we have it? Well, it's really hard to make actually. Um, and as the batches go through, it takes about three months, there's very strict quality control. And if at any point that batch fails the quality control, the whole batch is done. Um, in addition, uh, you know, there's a lot of places that have BCG vaccines um, and those, the dose of the vial of one vial um, has a ton of vaccines, but it's only one dose for one of the induction or maintenance or whatever. In addition, um, there's not a great financial incentive uh, for this. And um, surprisingly, even though Merck is the sole producer, it's still actually relatively very cheap to, to get. Um, so what to do if you're experiencing a shortage and how to kind of avoid a shortage. Um, 
I found it really interesting uh, when when this all started. I I was just like at the very beginning of becoming an attending, um, and I found out that BCG like uh, they just ship it. There's like no tracking number. You don't know when it's coming. It just kind of shows up at the pharmacy. I was okay. like Amazon has a much better practice on how they get things to people than than Merck does. So I thought that that was a little bit strange. Um, but there's there's no other approved intravascular agents uh, for induction or maintenance in the um, intermediate or um, high-risk muscle invasive bladder cancer. So basically there's no real substitute for it. Um, so addressing modifiable risk factors, you know, smoking cessation and all that stuff, but also high quality TRBT using blue light if you have it available to find everything that you can. Um, so in uh, 2019, the AUA put out some guidance, um, and this is really based on the risk categories that go along with their guidelines. Um, so low-risk patients uh, should not be getting BCG at all. Um, the intermediate risk, the preferred is intravascular chemotherapy. They said mitomycin is their preference, but there's not really a lot of data on that versus um, gemcitabine docetaxel. I personally use gemcitabine docetaxel in these patients up front um, because it's really well tolerated. And I think um, I have some of the fears about mitomycin um, that we talked about a little bit earlier. And then a third dose of BCG as a second line. So the preferred is, is chemotherapy. And then for high risk, um, you know, we talked a lot about maintenance today. We talked a lot about the SWOG protocol that goes for three years. Uh, the guidance was for those high-risk patients um, to do a year of maintenance. Um, and then what I do in my practice, so we usually do half dose for the, the BCG maintenance. Um, so induction, we try to do full dose. And then for maintenance, we try to do half dose. And I mean, you know, patients still have symptoms. They still have the lower urinary tract symptoms. They still, um, you know, have, have low-grade fevers. I mean, they're still producing an immune response. So I think it's going to be really interesting after this BCG shortage is over, what the outcome is it, if this um, third, third and half dose maintenance is actually adequate. And in the future, maybe that's something we're going to move forward to. Um, and then, of course, patients with T1 high grade, um, they're the highest of the highest risk. And then if they have other risk factors associated like CIS or lymphovascular invasion or it's a large tumor, um, really push for cystectomy in those patients. All right, um, and then this is the last slide. Um, and so this is uh, actually based from an interesting uh, meta-analysis that was published in uh, 2017. And so basically it, it looked at what do we do with a BCG naive patient and the um, RR is recurrence risk here and then the 95% uh, confidence interval. Basically there was no real difference in uh, recurrence and progression when it was compared to BCG for induction. Um, so when we're looking at those you know, short intermediate um, time points, but if you're giving BCG maintenance, it's superior to all these chemotherapies. And I mean, I think um, for the most part, uh, a lot of people have moved um, from just single chemotherapies to the doublet chemotherapies um, that they talk about. Um, so in the graphs here, you see uh, the um, gemcitabine with mitomycin with pretty good, you know, on par with what everything else we talked about today for, um, Recurrence-free survival, 44% at two years, 
Um, and then the gemcitabine docetaxel has a better recurrence-free for survival for patients that do not have CIS. Um, when you look at this CIS anything, so CIS alone, CIS plus TA, CIS plus T1, all those numbers of recurrence-free survival are much lower. But if you have just TA, just T1, I mean, the 60% recurrence-free survival at two years is great. Yeah, we, we've been using um, uh, gemcitabine and docetaxel as well as a BCG replacement. I mean, it's, it is unpredictable. You know, we count vials um, every two weeks just and then try to plan ahead because you never know what's going to show up um, in terms of BCG. So sometimes we're like BCG rich and sometimes we're like uh, calling everybody, there's none, switching things around, splitting doses. And so um, we've tried a few different like systematic ways to not have so many ebbs and flows. But um, yes, again, the shipping process, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to predict. Uh, Dr. Murray, what has been your experience in terms of the BCG shortage? Have you felt it at all um, over there or not, not really as much? Yeah, so we, you know, it, same situation that everybody, you know, that Janet's talked about and you as well, Seema, um, you know, but we've really been trying to um, try to coordinate patients. So we have, have gotten rid of, of doing, you know, maintenance, especially, um, you know, except for those really high risk patients that, that absolutely need it. Otherwise, we're giving no maintenance and trying to, you know, put two appointments, you know, two patients that need it right on top of each other so that we can split doses. In reality, that is, it seems like it should be very easy to do scheduling, right? We all know that the reality of that scheduling is somehow turns impossible. Um, and so it is, but there have been patients, you know, that we want to start on induction and we say, we're going to start, you know, in two weeks and we end up starting in four weeks because, you know, the week ahead of time we're calling and we're saying, oh, we don't have it, but kind of be on call. And as soon as it gets here, you know, we'll get you in and get you started. How about you, Sarah? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've done, uh, it's amazing how we've all become sort of masters at these logistical sort of juggling acts. I definitely, we've stacked our our, um, our appointments to be able to split vials and make sure we don't waste any. We were really judicious with maintenance early on when we were really feeling the shortage. Now we are in a little bit of a better situation, but I will say that we're one of the few centers right now in Washington state that has it. So we're seeing patients get referred in so they can get BCG here and we're kind of carrying that. Um, we really relied on clinical trials. So for example, when SWOG 1602 was accruing, we just we're putting everyone we possibly could on that because that was one way, one, it's a great trial. And we really are excited about those. those um, and we think it's really important to, to study the different uh, viabilities of these different um, strains of BCG. And also I think the, the primed arm, that that's gonna be a really interesting hypothesis to test. But aside all of that, that was one way we could get patients BCG. There are other sort of um, high risk trials that we have ongoing right now in the BCG unresponsive state for certain, those patients, instead of just going with a second induction course, if we don't have the BCG, thinking about one of the, the trials that are available for those patients, I think can be really helpful. But it, it has been tricky and we have, and I think relying more and more on the gem dose as well. Um, 
is is important. Um, but it's it's something that we just have to be very upfront with patients about. And then, like you like you've all talked about, I mean, it's it's just understanding and how and sort of massaging the logistics to try to make maximize the utility of the BCG we've got and minimize any waste. Yeah. How about you, Sumit? Have you guys experienced shortage? Yeah, I mean, similar to what everybody is, is has talked about, um, the logistics seem easy, and and I don't think that um, it, it has not worked out very very well in our practice, um, and so we're we're not doing a lot of split doses actually. Um, we do we have no maintenance. We've had no BCG for maintenance for many months now. Um, we were heavily enrolling into sixteen oh two, and we all sort of breathe a sigh of relief and, and didn't at least have to worry about could we get induction for our patients or not. Now we're back on that train where we have these lists and these waiting lists. Um, and, and you know we're just used to kind of immediately after you get the pathology report, putting them on the waiting list. And usually you can, you know, we, there's something available within a few weeks and you feel okay, but it's always teetering on this edge. Um, I do, I have used um, Gemdosi for BCG naive patients um, in certain cases. Um, but yeah, and, and, and in terms of clinical trials, you know, like we've talked about to get them on the trial, you also have to have had them get BCG and get, you know, one induction plus, plus two of another. And so it's a whole, you know, balancing, balancing that as well. So yeah, similar to everybody else. What's interesting is at, on our campus, um, that, that was the situation at our, at our cancer center and across the street at our county hospital, they have had zero shortage the entire time. Um, and so the supply chain thing is the most interesting aspect of, of this whole thing. Um, and there's no transparency on it. And so, um, you know, and it doesn't seem like it's going to stabilize anytime within the next year or so. So yeah, at least space for, for a, a lot of trials and accrual to trials, I think, because of it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for, for um, joining me today for this uh, panel discussion and this case discussion with real world cases. Um, I particularly like that they were not all like in these perfect set, you know, uh, definitions, because I think it really does reflect how complex practice can be today. Um, for those of you out there watching this, um, please uh, use the, the QR code and uh, take a survey and fill out the evaluation. And um, I look hopefully forward to doing this again when, when we have even more options and we're sort of discussing multiple options in all the different spaces. Um, thanks again. And, and I hope everyone has a great evening, afternoon, wherever you are. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.com dot ucsf dot edu